Welcome to Urban Dharma, where suffering is always optional. Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast. This is Reverend Kusler from downtown Los Angeles, speaking to you from the International Buddhist Meditation Center. This particular podcast is part two of a presentation I gave at Bishop Montgomery High School. You'll find at the end of this presentation, there's a question and answer period, and then I play my harmonica for the class. Unfortunately, I played a little too loud, and the microphone was a little too close, so the full sound of the harmonica uh, can't be heard, but you'll get an idea of what it might have sounded like if you had been in the classroom listening to me. I also wanted to mention Urban Dharma, the website, urbandharma.org, has a lot of free ebooks you can download. There's a, a page devoted just to ebooks, which you'll be able to find when you go to urbandharma.org, and please take advantage of those. If this presentation inspired you at all, to seek more information about Buddhism, I think the ebooks for free download will be very helpful. And there's a 2006 Buddhist calendar that is suitable for printing, a PDF file, that you can download too, for free. So having said all of that, oh, one more thing. I wanted to talk about the digital audio recorder that I use in case anybody was interested. Uh, I went to Amazon.com and found an Olympus DS2. Um, I then went to Radio Shack and found a lapel mic, and when I give my presentations, I, it's, a, it's a small recorder, as you can imagine. I just put it in my pocket and put the lapel mic on, and off I go. And so far, so good. I, I like the sound. It seems to be clear, and it's easy to carry. So without further ado, here is part two of my presentation to the Comparative Religions class at Bishop Montgomery High School. We start our practice with the precepts, and then we go into meditation. There are three path factors in meditation, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Right effort is not about going to Gold's Gym. Right effort has nothing to do with the body. It's all about the mind. We are now in the process of changing our consciousness. We started with changing our speech and action. Now we're going to change our consciousness. Right effort to prevent unskillful thoughts from arising. To abandon unskillful thoughts once they have arisen. To develop skillful thoughts that have not yet arisen. To maintain skillful thoughts that have already arisen. What is a skillful thought? A skillful thought is one that's based in love, generosity, compassion, and wisdom. What's an unskillful thought? One that's based in lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. I'll give you a personal example. Just the other night, I was at Vaughn's supermarket. I found myself on the bakery aisle, and in front of me was a large stack of Entenmann's chocolate cakes, the one with the cream filling. And I said to myself, I'm buying two, one for tonight and one for tomorrow. But when I reflected on that particular thought, I realized it was rooted in greed. And if I wanted to buy two, I should buy one for me 
and one for you. And that thought would be rooted in generosity. And that's what this right effort is. It's becoming aware of our thought process and then noting skillful, unskillful, skillful, unskillful. And simply becoming aware of that has an effect on our consciousness stream, on our discursive thought. There are two kinds of Buddhist meditation. One is called tranquility or samatha. One is called vipassana or insight. One is designed to make us happy. One is designed to end our suffering. One is designed to make us happy. And one is designed to end our suffering. Now, most of the people I talk to do not want to end their suffering. They just want to be happy. And that makes sense to me. When I go to UCLA, they don't want to end their suffering. They want to be happy. Who wants to end suffering? Are we really suffering yet? No, we're doing pretty good. So let's talk about being happy. What makes us happy? Usually the stuff on the outside makes us happy. If we get that new video iPod, how cool would that be? To carry all those great TV shows with you everywhere you went? Man, would that make you happy? Or how about that new guitar that you've been wanting but haven't quite, you know, seen the need yet? And then you get that thing, and it's all wood, and it sounds so good, and you can play so much better than you used to be able to play. Does that make you happy? So a lot of our happiness is based on outside stuff. And in America, we are consumers, no longer citizens. Remember what President Bush told us to do after 9-11? Go out and buy something. Yeah. Because that would make us happy, and it would be good for the economy. Most cool. But Buddhism says we have all the happiness we need right here, already. It's inside. We just don't know how to find it. We've been looking on the outside for our happiness, Buddhism says, oh no, start looking on the inside for your happiness. You'll find more than you'll need. You'll be able to share with other people as well. So this first kind of meditation is designed to find that happiness. It's called jhanic meditation. There are four jhanas, four levels of tranquility, four levels of one-pointedness. The first jhana has five characteristics. Applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The second jhana has three characteristics. Happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The third jhana has two characteristics. Happiness, equanimity. The fourth jhana has one characteristic, equanimity. Buddhism is a religion of renunciation. When we progress, we give things up. We don't accumulate anything. I like that message because Buddhism says you already have enough love. You just need to get rid of that lust. You already have as much generosity as you'll ever need. You just need to get rid of your greed. You already have as much compassion and loving kindness as you'll ever need once you get rid of your hatred and your anger. You already have all the wisdom you'll ever need once you get rid of that delusion and your ignorance. So Buddhist meditation is designed to get rid of lust, greed, hatred and delusion and leave love generosity compassion isn't that so cool I like that it's a positive message even though all I do is talk about suffering so here we are we're sitting on the floor now and our object of meditation is going to be the sensation of breath it's going out and coming in going out and coming in and we take our consciousness our mind 
and we bring it to the tip of our nose and we become aware of the sensation going out and coming in, going out and coming in. Now, that may not sound like very much, but you know what you're doing? You're bringing your mind into the present moment experience of your body. And that is unique because most of the time our mind is past and future. Worrying about next class, regretting the past one. And our body, where is our body all this time? Our body is right here, right now. It can't leave. It can't go anyplace. It can't go 2,000 years into the future. But our mind can, just like that. It can't go a million years in the past, but our mind can, just like that. So when your mind becomes aware of the sensation of breath, that sensation is a physical sensation. That sensation only happens right now in the present moment. Your mind now is being reconnected with your body in the present moment experience of your life. Wow. So what is your life like in the present moment? Well, you have sore knees and your back hurts. Your mind's a little agitated. You forgot to eat lunch. You're a little bit hungry. That's life. Well, who wants to be there? Wouldn't you rather be thinking about the next vacation you're going to take rather than thinking about all that stuff that's happening right now? Your life is changed in the present moment. Your whole future depends on right now. Wow. So if you can figure out how to be here now, you have a chance to create a really interesting life for yourself. But if you're always past and future, you miss the opportunity. Because you can't change anything in the past, and you can't change anything in the future. You can only change stuff right now. So here we are, sitting quietly right now, mind and body, sensation going out, sensation coming in, applied thought, sustained thought. When you become one-pointed, when you become concentrated, pleasure in the body arises, happiness in the mind arises, and balance, equanimity arises. How cool is that? Just from sitting down thinking about one thing. If you think about two things, you have to you let go of that second thing and come back to the breath. If you think about three things, you've got to let go of those other two things come back with the breath. Always back to the breath. Sensation going out, sensation coming in. If you do that well, eventually you won't even need to apply your thought and hold it there. It'll simply stay there all by itself. When that happens, that's the second jhana. We've gotten rid of two things. We've gotten rid of applied thought and sustained thought. Now we have a greater sense of physical pleasure. We have a greater sense of mental happiness. And we have a greater sense of balance and equanimity. Those are the characteristics of the second jhana. Now, in order to get to the third jhana, we have to give something up. Remember, to get to the second jhana, we had to give up applied thought and sustained thought. In order to get to the third jhana, we have to give up pleasure. Wow, you know, this is a tough one. Who wants to give up pleasure? Now, I'm talking about pleasure of the body. I'm talking about the way that body feels when it's really feeling good. I used to weightlift and bench press and stuff, and after a, a weightlifting thing, I was just high as a kite. I had all these things happening to my body. It felt so good. So why would anybody want to give up pleasure? What could be the possible benefit of giving up physical pleasure? Because if you give up pleasure, you will never have pain again. Pain and pleasure are connected. But do you have enough pain to give up pleasure? Probably not. It would take an awful lot of pain to have to give up pleasure, wouldn't it? But maybe if you were in Pakistan in one of those little mountain villages and your whole village had been wiped out, 
and you were lying there with a broken leg and you knew nobody was coming for days and you'd probably be dead and this was going to be your last few days on earth, it might be worth giving up pleasure to give up the pain. Well, as a meditator, if you can figure out why it's good and how to do it, then you go from the second jhana into the third jhana, and now all you have left is happiness and equanimity. And we know because Buddhism is a path of renunciation, in order to get to the fourth jhana, we've got to give something else up. And now we've got to think about giving up happiness. Wow, not only do I have to give up pleasure, I've got to give up happiness. But if I'm able to give up happiness, what am I also giving up? Sadness. I'll never feel pleasure, but I won't feel pain. If I give up happiness, I'll never be sad again in my whole life. And if you haven't been really, really sad, you might not appreciate how significant that can be. But some people are sad for years because of something that happened or some missed opportunity. So now the meditator decides that it is worth giving up happiness to get rid of sadness. And they slip into the fourth jhana. And now all that's left is equanimity. Perfect balance of mind. You're right in the middle. You have no preferences or choices of the way things are or should be. Your world at this point is perfect. Exactly the way it's supposed to be. You have no pleasure, you have no pain, you have no happiness, you have no sadness. You have perfect balance of mind and ultimate clarity on your place in the universe. How cool. The problem is, though, when you get off the cushion, leave the Zendo, get into your car, go on the 405 freeway, someone cuts you off, all that hatred and anger and rage comes back, and all that time spent is lost. You go, wow, I was there. I felt it. I see it now. I understand it. But, but it's hard to stay there because I've got to go to school. I've got to go to work. I've got to do all sorts of stuff. I just can't be in the cushion all the time. And that's what the Buddha realized as well. So he rediscovered insight meditation, which allowed him to permanently go into that place of perfect balance and equanimity. And it couldn't be taken away. I say he rediscovered it because he is the 28th Buddha, according to Theravada Buddhism. There were 27 before him. It had been lost to the world. He rediscovered the path to nirvana. He rediscovered insight meditation, which allowed him to cut away the defilements and the fetters that prevented him from achieving his full perfection as a human being. There are four kinds of insight meditation. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of mental objects. I want to talk about mindfulness of sensations or mindfulness of feelings. The Buddha said we have three kinds of feelings. We have good feelings, we have bad feelings, we have neutral feelings. Most of the time we're not aware of the neutral feelings. We're only aware of the good feelings and the bad feelings. So rather than going into a deeper and deeper place of one-pointedness or concentration, now we start at the top of our head and go to the tip of our toes, and we're looking for sensations, any kind of sensation, sore knees, scratchy face, leg fell asleep, whatever it is, and you note it, and you say, you say good, bad, or neutral. You label it, and then you go to the next one. 
So you might find 25 good sensations. You might find 56 bad ones that were uncomfortable. Okay, now you come out of your meditation and you go into a deep state of reflection. And what you're reflecting on were the sensations and how they apply to the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom, which are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. So the first thing we want to investigate is impermanence. And you'd reflect on all the sensations you became aware of, and you'd say to yourself, were all these sensations impermanent, or did some seem to exist independently? Did some seem to be of an unchanging quality rather than ever-changing quality? And if you reflect with clarity, you'll notice that every sensation you had had sort of a vibratory nature. It would become stronger, it would become weaker. Sometimes it would almost, almost seem to go away, and then it would come up again in some other part of your body. But none of the sensations seemed to stay the same. They were always changing. With that insight, you would apply it to the world around you, and you would say to yourself, is everything in this world unchanging? Or is there something that doesn't change? Is there something that's unconditional and lives independently? And you would look through all your past experiences, and you'd look at the world, and you'd say, gosh, it seems that everything in this world is always changing. Nothing stays the same very long at all. Okay, so now you're sort of figuring out that you've got really no place to stand because where you're standing right now changes immediately in the very next moment. Your thought you had right now is completely different in the next moment. The way you looked at 10 will be completely different from the way you look at 30. So, wow, everything does change. Now you want to look at all the sensations and you say to yourself, are they all unsatisfactory? Were they all uncomfortable, every sensation? But you had 26 good ones that felt really nice. So you have to say, no, they weren't all unsatisfactory. Some of them were, but they weren't all unsatisfactory. But now you apply this first insight into impermanence, and because of impermanence, the good sensations had to change, and you were disappointed when they changed because you grew attached to them, you were clinging to them, you didn't want them to change, and because they did change, they were unsatisfactory. And the conclusion you would come to is that because of impermanence, all things in this world are ultimately unsatisfactory because they change. Wow. Okay. So don't get too attached to anything, I guess, is the moral to this story so far. Now we come to the third aspect of Buddhist wisdom, which is the deepest of all. Did anything, did any of these sensations have their own essence? Did they have their own identity? Did they have their own quality? Did they have their own self? Did they have a soul? And you go, well, they didn't, you know, as I start to look at the essence of these sensations, I couldn't find where they were coming from. I couldn't pinpoint. When I had that sore knee, it's like what part of the knee was the sensation coming from? And did it live independently of the knee? Or because the knee was bent, is that why the sensation was there? Did the sensation have its own life? Did it exist by itself? And I'm going, well, this is a tough one. This is a hard one to understand. So now, I thought back when I was studying this to one of the books I read back in the 70s, which was called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Pierzig. 
a most cool book. And in this book, he had a Honda Superhawk 400, and his buddy had a BMW. And his buddy always felt the BMW had more quality than the Honda because it was German-engineered. And I'm thinking, okay, wouldn't it have been cool, they didn't do this, but wouldn't it have been cool if each one of them had taken their motorcycles to the Kmart parking lot? and taking them apart into their 10,000 pieces. And now you give each one of them a magnifying glass, and you say to them, find me the quality of your motorcycle. In which part does it reside? And there they were, piece after piece, looking for the quality. And they couldn't find it. They couldn't find the sole of their motorcycle in any one of the pieces. And yet somehow, miraculously, as the motorcycle was assembled, assembled and became one again, the quality appeared. The quality appeared because of the illusion of one. The quality disappeared because of the parts, because of the many. Now, when we look at ourselves, we usually identify ourselves like, here's Kusala. And I have this one word, and it takes into account all my 10,000 pieces. If you had to name every part of me, every time you saw me, you'd probably avoid me, because it would take you so long so we've got this sort of shorthand thing happening where we can call this a table and call that a chair, and we don't have to name the back and the seat and the legs and the foot. and the, You know what I'm saying? This concept of one saved us a lot of time. This concept of one created a self-identity. This concept of one created quality. But when you take the one apart and look for the essence of the one, it's not there. And that's why the Buddha said, we do not exist independently. We are interconnected and interdependent. That is our ultimate reality. The illusion, the relative reality, is that we are one and separate. And that's how our society works. That's how we're able to drive cars and get out the door. Because if I wasn't separate from the door, I couldn't open it. I would be in this room forever because I would be one with the door. So I need to be separate from it. When I'm on my motorcycle at 70 miles an hour, I do not want to be one with the car next to me. I want to be separate. If a policeman pulls me over for doing 70 miles an hour, and I say, officer, I'm really not the one in this picture. I'm really connected to you. We're all interconnected, interdependent. And he might say to me, you need counseling, sir. So we have a relative reality and we have an ultimate reality. The relative reality is that we exist independently. We do have a self. The ultimate reality is that we do not exist independently. We do not have a self. It is simply a process that occurs because of mind and body. We are ultimately interconnected and interdependent. When that becomes real to you, when you see how you are interconnected and interdependent to everything in this world, your heart opens and it's broken. And it will never close again. And that is the path of the Bodhisattva, the Buddhist saint, who takes a vow to save all sentient beings. Because they now see in a real, personal way that they are connected to all other sentient beings. And if one person is sick, there's a part of them that is sick. 
If one person is homeless, there is a part of them that is homeless. If one person is dying, there is a part of them that is dying. And it's not an intellectual model. It's a reality that they can't turn away from. They can never go back to being stupid or ignorant again. They have woken up to the ultimate reality of Buddhism, and it changes their life forever. And they no longer have a choice. They might end up dressing funny. They might end up cutting off all their hair. They might end up living in single-gender communities because that gives them an opportunity to be of service to all those sentient beings they're connected with and who are suffering. How much time do we have? Okay, good. Yes, okay. Now, having said all of this, does anybody have any questions? Or does anybody have any answers? Yes. Wake up one day and become a Buddhist? Well, I'm a Buddhist! If you, if you um, accept all the things and you feel, like you were saying when you were younger, and then you felt like all these things that um, you learned about Buddhism sort of connected with you, how do you, do you have to like, do something? Do you have to go somewhere? You do. Yes, uh, how to become a Buddhist. Uh, you need to take the, the three refuges and the five precepts. And you're also given a Buddhist name. Um, it's something that you uh, arrange with the meditation center or temple that you've been going to. And you would go to the monk or the Dharma teacher and you would say, I want to become a Buddhist. I want to become an official Buddhist. And they have ceremonies for this. And in the ceremony, you would take refuge. You would take refuge in the Buddha as being a world teacher. One who has achieved his perfection and allowing you to achieve your perfection as well. You take refuge in his teachings. The teachings in Buddhism are more important than the Buddha because the Buddha can't save us, but his teachings can. So you would take refuge in the teachings of the Buddha as being the ultimate truth, a way of ending your suffering and being your refuge. And you would take refuge in the monks and the nuns, the, the living sangha, the living practitioners, and use them as an ideal or an example of how to live in the world in a Buddhist way. So you take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and then you get the five precepts, and then you get your Buddhist name. And the reason you get a Buddhist name is because that helps you change faster. Now, even if you never become a Buddhist, you will get new names as you get older. And one of the new names you'll probably get is husband or wife. This is my husband. No, I thought I was Joe. No, this is my husband. And then all of a sudden, Joe gets another name. Joe gets the name of father or dad. Wow. So now Joe has to stop being Joe and start being dad. Now Joe has to stop being Joe and start being a husband. And so a new name allows you to sort of leave the old behind and then get into the new at a much faster rate. And if we're all lucky, we'll become grandparents and be granddad and grandma. And that allows us then to have another role. So that's, that's how you do it. Uh-huh. There are there are specifically Buddhist meditation centers, but they're also just meditation centers, and they might have a variety of techniques borrowed from different traditions, or they might have created their own, you know, technique. 
Um, I, uh, once a month, go to a yoga studio in Thousand Oaks and give a talk and do, and do meditation. And so, um, in some cases, the, the, the centers are integrated with other traditions but have a Buddhist aspect to them. Well, uh, yeah, if you really feel the need to convert, but I think most people just go because they're interested. I, I Very rare does somebody convert because it's not like Christianity doesn't work. You know, if, if it didn't work, I'd say, yeah, but it does work. Judaism works. Islam works. Hinduism works. They, they all work. You know, so it's not like you're, you're getting rid of one because it didn't work and go to another one. Uh, everybody converts for their own reason. I converted because I, I wasn't much of a Christian at all, and Buddhism made so much sense. So I, I just, it was, seemed natural to me. It wasn't like I was leaving Christianity because I was never really a Christian anyway. I was only a Christian because my parents were, and didn't want them to be uncomfortable. But then I needed to be comfortable. You know, and at that point, they didn't care anymore, so it worked out well. Well, you know, in some cases, this is interesting, because in some cases, people feel that way. They, they feel that maybe I'm not a strong Christian, Buddhism is better, and they end up studying Buddhism, and they start to find out a lot about their own Christianity. Buddhism seems to shine a light on their own tradition in another way. So now they're taking a different approach their, to their tradition and realize it is wonderful and deep, and there's a lot of things they haven't even thought about, like... For instance, there's a lot of Catholics going to Catholic monasteries to learn how to meditate with the monks. They have lay people coming into these monasteries and learning how to meditate. Isn't that cool? So people that want to meditate and are Catholic don't have to go to Buddhist centers to meditate. It's already in your own tradition. It just generally isn't in the parishes, in, 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 in the city churches, because they've got a lot of stuff to do besides meditate. But you go out to some of the other places and you go, wow, it's all here. My tradition has everything I needed. I just didn't know it was there until I started to study Buddhism and see what I needed to do next. So that's usually what happens. Very rare does somebody switch. Somebody seems to find more in their own tradition because of the study of Buddhism. Is that helpful? Yeah. Yeah? Good. Yes? Okay, uh, Siddhartha. Siddhartha Gautama. What happened to them? Why they, why weren't they known as well? Like so much like he was. Well, they are, but, but not, uh, they are in Buddhism. They, their names are known and what they did is known. Uh, but this one's been around for 2,500 years, so his teachings. So, you know, we sort of forget the other ones. The same teachings. But they just had to be rediscovered when the other ones died. So when a Buddha dies, which I guess is more the question. What happens when a Buddha dies? When a Buddha dies, he is never reborn again. Uh, he now exists because of nirvana and not because of birth. So he can't come back to earth anymore. He can't come back to teach anymore. When his teachings die out, after his body dies, his teachings have a longevity because of the people practicing and the monks and the sanghas and things like that. When all those people die out and the last person who knows the teachings of the Buddha dies... Then the new Buddha is reborn out of heaven, Buddhist heaven, onto earth, rediscovers the teachings, and starts the wheel again, the wheel of Dharma. So that's how it sort of works. Isn't that cool? Yeah. That's on, are, are we getting close? Uh, we've got two more questions. Okay. Um, so, what is the 
Okay. Yes, yes, please. How we all got here? Yeah, that's really a good question because we don't have to worry about that. Uh, the Buddha never told us. He was asked, how did it all start? What does it all mean? Did God create it? It was the Big Bang Theory because he wasn't asked about that. But, but what, how do we start? So we're allowed as a Buddhist to believe that God created the universe or that it was the Big Bang Theory or we can just say, I don't care. You just believe in anything. anything or nothing. We don't care. Most important thing for a Buddhist is not how it started, but what are you going to do about it now? You see? And not how it's going to end. I know there's a lot of apocalypse stuff happening, you know. We get always coming the apocalypse, but, we, you know. For me, the apocalypse is when I'm in the bed in the hospital and my line goes flat. That's my apocalypse, you know. So it's all about now. Is that good? Yeah. Yes? I was wondering, what did the name Buddha come about? I know I said after how you guys gave him the title Buddha, but like, what does the word... What does the word mean? Yeah, where does it come from? Uh, the word is, uh, well, it's like a Sanskrit word, and it means one who is awake. So anybody can be a Buddha. It's, it's just a title. It's like anybody can be president if they get elected, and anybody can be a Buddha. So, yeah, good, good question. Yes? Oh, that's the best question. Okay. What's reborn if you don't have a soul? What's reborn is our karmic energy. We're like transformers. Energy can't be created or destroyed. It can all be transformed. And so we have this body and we have this mind. And this mind and body is constantly transforming energy. And that transformation of energy was given a moral value, either skillful or unskillful. And the consequences of skillful or unskillful are more suffering and less suffering. But that energy, once it's been transformed, can't be destroyed. So what happens is this karmic energy flow, when this body drops, now seeks a new rebirth. And that karmic energy is called Gandhava. It's a verb as opposed to a noun. And it seeks out warm, moist places. What it said needs to happen for a human being to be born is you have to have a sperm, egg, and Gandhava. When those three things come together, human life starts. So that karmic energy now gives us a starting place for this lifetime, but it's not predestination because at any point, with proper, skillful speech, action, and, and intention, we can change the consequences of all past karma. Is that helpful? Okay. Good question. Okay, you know, I was asked, yes, one more? Please, please. Um, after, like, okay, so reincarnation, like, you keep doing it until you become a perfect human being? Reincarnation is when you have a soul, and rebirth is when you have karmic energy. So Buddhists are reborn as opposed to reincarnated. A subtle difference, but one that's good to hear. Um, the way we end our rebirth is to end our karma. Mm -hmm. When we achieve nirvana, we bring our karma to an end. And so when that ends, then you can't be reborn again because you need a sperm, egg, and karmic energy to be reborn. So and nirvana... Okay, where do you go after that? Uh, and, and this is something that I've, I've come up with just recently. So I'm going to. What happens is, when you die and have achieved nirvana, you are now existing not because of the next birth, but because of your nirvana. You exist because of nirvana. Nirvana has no beginning, it has no end, has no color, has no smell, has no taste, no touch. 
And everything in this world, everything, with no exceptions, was created. Nirvana is uncreated. So to try to imagine existing and not being born is really difficult. The mind sort of closes down and says, no, I, I can't believe it. So the Buddha is existing right now, all of them, but existing because of nirvana and not because of birth. Now, it's so that can be your koan, the, the question that can't be answered. You know? Thanks for asking that, though. Yeah, do you have... What is the... Okay, I, I, I pronounce it Tipitaka, but it can be pronounced Tipitaka, and that is the, the, uh, the Buddhist literature that's called the Three Baskets. The first basket has the rules and regulations of the monks and nuns. The second basket has the sutras, the talks of the Buddha. And the third basket has the Buddhist psychology known as the Abhidharma. Those three things create our canonical texts. So we don't have one book, we have a library that we go through. Are you ready for some blues? Do you have a question? Yeah, but it's okay. Okay. Because last uh, class, I didn't get a chance to do that. You know, I was in juvenile hall. Uh, I, I was teaching well in the probation camp. I taught blues harmonica. And I like playing harmonica, especially after talking about suffering and death and all these things I've talked about. It gets really bummed out. And I find the harmonica just makes people smile again and happy that they're alive and enjoying their life. So this is an original uh, song uh, called the Juvenile Hall Blues that we'll see if we can make happen here, okay? better? Do I see smiles? Okay, cool. It works. Well, that's the end of podcast number three and part two of my presentation at Bishop Montgomery High School. Hope you found it interesting and hope you found it useful. So until uh, the next presentation, until the next podcast, uh, be well, be happy, and most of all, be free 
from suffering.